Hello, and welcome to the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby, and I'm delighted to have you here with me for this film and entertainment industry podcast. I have five movies I'm excited, mostly excited to talk about today, getting back into the swing of just watching new movies and trying to stay up to date or as up to date as I can with life being crazy. My last episode was posted a little late. Today's episode is a little later than I want as well. I try to stick to a Thursday schedule, but as anyone that works a full-time job knows, sometimes life just gets in the way and when I'm doing this podcast as a hobby on the side, maybe hoping it becomes something, it's sometimes hard to keep to that schedule. So I'll do my best to get back on my Thursday schedule, but for now, this episode will go up on Friday, and it'll be what it is. So like I said, I have five movies I want to talk about today, but it feels as though I haven't really given you much updates on the industry side of things lately. Last episode, the only industry update I really gave was on... Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour coming to theaters and the projections on that and the whole distribution deal. Then before that was my 20th episode of my top five list. So I want to focus on the industry a bit. And as always, I'm a big fan of following the box office and tracking the revenues and returns on movies. So I'm going to share a little box office update. It's been a few weeks now since I talked about the Barbenheimer epidemic, so to say, and how crazy it's been. So short updates on that. Barbie has finally passed the Super Mario Brothers movie to become the number one movie at the box office this year. It passed $1.4 billion worldwide. Just a massive success. It cannot be understated. For everyone involved, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach as the director and writer, respectively. For Ryan Gosling, for Margot Robbie, who is arguably the biggest star on the planet right now. And for her production company, Lucky Chap Entertainment. When you're the company that produces the biggest movie of the year... You're likely to get any future project you want greenlit and financed much easier. And then for Warner Brothers, this has been a massive win when their DC movies have been huge losses this year. And the final big winner is Mattel, the toy company that owns Barbie. There's already been a ton of talk of Mattel doing future toy movies. We know this is how Hollywood works. When something does well and when it works and audience respond well to it, Hollywood takes that idea, runs with it, and then beats it to death. I saw one report saying there are over 30 different toy movies in different stages of pre-production as companies look to capitalize on what they think is a new market in Hollywood. Mattel themselves have already, I believe Mattel came out and said that there's a Hot Wheels movie that's being discussed. I don't know how you do a Hot Hot Wheels movie personally. I feel like with cars, it's been done. There have been tons of racing movies, the Need for Speeds, the earlier Fast and Furious movies. I don't know where you're going to fit Hot Wheels in, but they're going to try because that's what Hollywood does. The other half of Barbenheimer, Oppenheimer, is now up to the number three movie worldwide this year. It's at $890 million. It's going to be close if it can pass that billion mark. It'll be a really interesting race to the finish as I believe it had a 90-day theatrical-only release window. So as that comes to a close towards the end of October, I want to say it'll be interesting to see where Oppenheimer sits at. Oppenheimer is a rated R movie. It's currently the number two rated R movie of all time. The only rated R movie it's behind is Joker, which did just over $1 billion. So there's a chance for Oppenheimer to become number one rated R movie, which would just be such a massive achievement. For Christopher Nolan, this is his third biggest film ever behind only the two Dark Knight movies. It's 
I, I said this over and over again for a movie that is a biopic three hours long about a nuclear physicist to be do this successful, not only critically as we knew it would be a technical masterpiece and a huge achievement in filmmaking, but to be this successful financially is really impressive. So I'll be talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer a lot less. The fad, the craze has finally started to fade. It was really in mid to late August that people started moving on and looking for other pop culture moments. But I cannot uh, overstate how big of a surprise this was. At the beginning of the year, no one expected Barbie to be in the top five. I don't think anyone expected Oppenheimer to be in the top five or the top ten. These movies lifted each other up and are just massive successes for everyone involved. And it's really exciting for someone like me to see, especially with how good those movies are. And recent release, uh, The Equalizer 3. Uh, starring Denzel Washington is in theaters. I have personally not seen it yet. It is right at the top of my list for movies I want to see. That opened to the tune of $34 million. In two weeks, it's done $62 million domestically, which puts it right on par with Equalizer and Equalizer 2. Most of the time, especially with the trilogy, you would hope the third movie gets bigger returns and is doing bigger numbers. But as always, we're in a post-COVID Hollywood, which is drastically impacted expectations on movies and what you should expect movies to do at the box office. So for Equalizer 3 to be sitting on par with its predecessors is very impressive. I think this is going to be looked at as a success. And from what I've heard, it is a very solid movie, enjoyable and just a good piece of filmmaking. And Denzel, of course, is one of the greatest actors alive. So I'm very excited to watch this. I will be here talking about it as soon as I see the movie and I will let you know how it is and if you should see it. And then my last box office update, we are turning back to Warner Brothers to the world of DC with the newest DC movie, Blue Beetle. It opened at only $25 million its opening weekend, which is the lowest opening for DC. The little asterisk on that as at the end of 2020, Wonder Woman 84 came out and Warner Brothers decided to simultaneously release it on HBO Max at the same time. So that movie only did $16 million its opening weekend in theaters, but it was available for people to watch at home and not many people were going back to theaters yet or comfortable with it. So for what's supposed to be the start of a new chapter for DC being their lowest opening across all the DC movies is a little disheartening, but I will be talking about Blue Beetle later today. So I will maybe dive into that a bit once I get around to my review for the movie. That's my last box office update for now. What's really been more interesting on the industry side is these strikes. I have not talked about them in three to four weeks now on this podcast. And where I last left it, the Writers Guild and AMPTP met up and resumed negotiations. And it sounded like things were optimistic. But as I had mentioned, it seemed like the studios were the ones who put, who leaked the details of their offer in an attempt to get union members to become unhappy with union leadership. What we're hearing from the Writers Guild is that there were so many exceptions and fine prints on these offers and on the terms that it was not a good deal for the writers in any way. And it was the studios trying to play the game a bit in negotiations and play on writers who are hurting from this strike and being out of work and saying, hey, this deal is good enough, let's take it. The Writers Guild is still standing strong. There's a lot of solidarity amongst their members. They're still out there picketing, which is great news. And just recently, uh, the WGA put out an email 
saying that certain legacy companies, that is to say not streamers, have expressed a desire and willingness to negotiate an agreement that adequately addresses the writer's proposals. That's massive. If that is true, it's showing that there are some cracks starting to show in the AMPT, AMPTP with these major studios. And it doesn't really surprise me. A lot of the issues at play are streaming related. And when you look at the big companies such as Sony, Paramount, Lionsgate, who are not streamers, they don't have a bone in the streaming fight. It's very reasonable for them to say, you know what, these other studios are dragging us down. They're preventing us from doing our work and realizing our potential revenues. So we are going to strike an interim agreement. And one executive unnamed is even quoted as saying the WGA proposals would not affect their company's bottom lines. That's massive. And it's what many people have believed, myself included, for the entirety of this strike. When you're seeing smaller production companies like A24, like Neon, that are striking interim deals with the unions and are able to continue working where those interim deals are agreed upon, it just shows that these production companies, no matter the scale, are able to meet these demands. It's greed that's preventing it and maybe more because a lot of this relies heavily on streaming numbers and finally actually seeing those numbers. It's a Pandora's box of maybe those streaming numbers are opened and the landscape of streaming has to change drastically as it seems many of these companies lose hundreds of millions of dollars on streaming every year. Speaking of losing hundreds of millions of dollars, on September 1st, Warner Brothers Discovery shared that the strikes are estimated to cost the company between three and $500 million in 2023. That is a massive number, but I'm a little skeptical of it because I'm of the belief that the way they word it and how they're saying it's going to cost the company three to $500 million may not be true to the exact wording of the statement. When a company like Disney, this was a couple of years ago, comes out and says we lost a billion dollars because of piracy, that's not necessarily the case. They're saying if nothing was pirated and every single person who pirated a show or movie signed up for Disney Plus, went to theaters to watch our movies and paid rather than pirate, we would have made a billion dollars more. The company's not losing a billion dollars. It's a potential billion dollars that they could not capitalize on. A lot of the people who turned to piracy would have never paid for Disney Plus or paid to go to the movies anyways. So I think that's a tricky line, but this is definitely starting to have a stronger impact on the studios and they're feeling the hits. Warner Brothers has also begun suspending many overall deals with production companies, namely Mindy Kaling's Kaling International and J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot. Both those overall deals have been suspended, meaning they are not paying the production companies anymore. And it'll be interesting to see if those deals are ever voided as these strikes go on, as Mindy Kaling, I believe, is a part of the Actors' Union. I wouldn't be surprised if J.J. Abrams is in either the Directors' or Writers' Union, maybe the Producers' Guild, but It'll be interesting to see what happens to a lot of these overall deals as these strikes continue to affect the industry. It's not only having an effect on the Hollywood filmmaking TV industry, though. It's also having an effect on California, namely as a whole. Business Insider reported that strikes have taken almost $5 billion out of the California economy. When you really think about it, that's not a surprise to me. With no movies or shows being produced, that means there are 
less people in the area to go to restaurants and use the businesses surrounding the studios or the sets or the lots. There are no rentals needed for any of the productions. There's no one needing hotels. It's a massive loss across the board for California. And it'll be really interesting to see what this looks like a year or two years from now as we look at California's economy and even places like Atlanta, Georgia, where filming is huge to see what effect this really had. It's one thing to report it's taken $5 billion out of the economy while it's happening. It's really interesting to look back on it two to three years from now and say California's GDP in 2023 was $5 billion lower than the previous and following year. So I'm very curious to see that. That's a long ways away. Sounds like the strike may go on for quite a while. It's the actors went on strike in July, the writers in May, and we're past Labor Day, which was kind of a benchmark for many people of getting back to work and hoping to get some TV out and get movies resuming and marketing them. But now it doesn't seem like we're really close at all in a deal. I would be shocked if this went into 2024. That would be such a major hit to the studios and to the networks that I, I cannot imagine the full scale strike such as this goes all the way into next year. If it comes down to it, I think those smaller studios, the legacy companies will begin to break off from the AMPTP and strike deals of their own to get back to work. But I, I think, I mean, it's mid-September now. I can't imagine the deal is going to be struck by the end of this month. Maybe they start negotiating again, and maybe through October, there's two strikes happening simultaneously. So if I had to guess, it'll probably be around November, Thanksgiving time that we finally get a deal struck. That's what I'm hoping for personally. More movies have been delayed. Dune 3 was delayed. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Dune 3, Dune 2 was delayed, which is a major move. People were speculating about it for quite some time and eventually it was delayed, which for some companies, that's great as now Disney's, the Marvels gets those IMAX screens that were fully reserved for Dune. But for Warner Brothers, that's a huge hit. What was going to be one of their biggest movies of the year outside of Barbie is not coming out this year. It's sometime next year. So I'm bummed. I was really excited for Dune 2, but we will see where that moves to. And that's the last of my update today. I'm going to go right into some movie reviews. As like I said, I have five reviews to talk about with you. All right. So the first two of my five reviews today are two Adam Sandler Netflix movies, both of them released this year. Here's my review for Murder Mystery 2. I really have a soft spot for stupid Adam Sandler comedies and nearly all of his Netflix movies under this massive deal he signed with them years ago fit that bill perfectly. No, they're not going to be classics like Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison, but they're good fun, they're harmless humor, and you're able to throw it on and just enjoy yourself. Murder Mystery 2 is obviously a sequel to Murder Mystery starring Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler. The two of them really have just a fantastic comedic chemistry together, and it's what makes these movies work. The movie's outlandish at times, it's ridiculous, but it's able to get quite a few laughs out of you. It's not amazing. It's, I don't have a ton to say about it because it's one of those where I threw it on, I scrolled my phone for a little bit, I got up, got a couple snacks, didn't pause the movie at all, just let it play for the hour and a half that it runs for. 
I doubt I'll ever watch it again. It's probably not going to cross my mind, nor will I ever talk about it again. But I watched it. I laughed a bit. I wasn't miserable during it. It's a great option if you just want something on the TV, but you don't really want to watch anything. You could kind of lose yourself in the humor, laugh a bit, and not regret the hour and a half you spent watching it. Murder Mystery 2 is getting a 6.4 out of 10 for me. All right. One more Adam Sandler Netflix movie. His most recent movie, Here's My Release for You're So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah. This movie I thought was a lot of fun because it stars Adam Sandler, his daughters Sadie and Sonny, as well as his wife Jackie Sandler. And the family dynamic from the Sandlers in this movie was very apparent and it added a whole nother level of wholesomeness to it, watching it and knowing that this was a family making this movie together about a family. It's not a technical achievement. The pacing is a little off as we were watching it. At one point, we're like, how are they going to wrap this all up? Like this major thing just happened and there was 30 minutes left in the movie and then it quickly wrapped it up from there. But that's fine because the movie did still have a lot of heart to it. I will say the score from Este Heim of the Heim sisters, Haim, I'm not sure how to pronounce them. Um, they opened for Taylor Swift recently. Uh, you may know the band. I'm not sure if it's Haim the band or the Haim sisters, but either way, Este Haim did the score and it was really enjoyable featuring a ton of new and new-ish music. I found myself bopping along to the music multiple times in the movie. The soundtrack was well-crafted. Um, but with You're So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah and any Adam Sandler movie on Netflix now, really just set your expectations, watch it, and enjoy. It always comes down to expectations. I go into these with the bare minimum expectation, and I walk out of it thinking, okay, I enjoyed that more than I thought I would, which is great. There's not much that needs to be said about these movies. They're very, what's the word? They're very low substance. That's, I think, the best way to describe it. And that's great sometimes. It's really nice to be able to just throw something on as background noise. You're so not invited to my bat mitzvah is getting a 6.5 out of 10 for me. All right, moving on. Here's my review for Haunted Mansion. The highlight of this movie, hands down, is Lakeith Stanfield. He was a delight. He carried all of the emotion in this movie. He is so well-suited to be a leading man in anything he's in. I am starting to love him as an actor. He just has so much on-screen charisma. And then you round out the rest of the cast. You have Rosario Dawson, Jamie Lee Curtis, both Owen Wilson and Danny DeVito bring their own brand of humor to this that is a lot of fun. The movie's not scary really at all for someone like me, maybe for a younger kid it is. It's a very family-friendly horror movie. It's more of a comedy than a horror in that sense as well. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Production on it actually began back in 2010 with Guillermo del Toro attached as writer and producer, but Disney said his script was too scary for family audiences, and that doesn't surprise me. I wish I could see his version of the Haunted Mansion story, having seen his take on Pinocchio. I think it would have been a lot of fun, but I agree it probably would have been a little too scary for Disney's family audience that they're looking for. The movie is a good time, and it's great family fun. The weak point of the movie is probably the antagonist, Jared Leto, as Alistair Crump. 
And it's not because of anything he did. It's just a matter of the villain wasn't very interesting. I was enjoying the dynamic before the villain is introduced and explained in all that expo exposition. What did surprise me with Haunted Mansion was the release timing on it. The movie came out the last weekend of July, one week after Barbenheimer, the same weekend as AMC's Talk to Me, a couple weeks before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, not even a week before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So it was sandwiched in this weird spot where you had a scary movie the same weekend from one of the two biggest names in horror movies, A24. It's after Barbie, which could be seen as a family-friendly movie. It's before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which tons of kids are going to want to see. It was just put at this weird time where it's getting eclipsed by everything that's around it. It opened to, not opened, it grossed only $101 million worldwide on what was a $157 million budget. So that's definitely not a success story at the box office. And I think there's only one real reason why, and that comes down to Disney's recent announcement about a week ago that Haunted Mansion would be available on Disney Plus on October 2nd. I think box office-wise, they would have been way better suited if they waited to late September to put this out and let it be the family-friendly, scary movie of the Halloween season, but they clearly wanted it to drive subscribers on Disney Plus. They wanted it there in October to get people to subscribe for a month and forget about their subscription or keep the subscription once they see the content. It's a choice that's made. I think it's not the smartest choice, especially when you have studios decrying theaters are dying. I think put this movie out when it should go out in the Halloween season, but alas, they didn't. All that said, like I mentioned, this movie is good, harmless fun. It's family friendly. I will never rewatch it. I can tell you that. It was not good enough in any way that I'm going to rewatch it. I will look for Lakeith Stanfield in a different movie if I want some of his acting presence. But it was still decent. wasn't bad. Haunted Mansion, 6.2 out of 10 for me. All right, I am flying through these reviews today. That is already three movies down and out of the way. My next review, another new release in theaters, here's my review for Gran Turismo based on a true story. So first, I have to start with the title of this movie. Gran Turismo based on a true story is just a mouthful. You don't need all of that in the movie title. Trim it to just Gran Turismo, way better in my opinion. But this is another one of those kind of historical dramatizations, and it seems like every episode I am talking about a movie that fits this bill. It's not surprising if you've listened to me talk about them, as I do love this style movie, so I am constantly seeking them out to watch them. And as I mentioned earlier, Hollywood really likes to beat things to death, and this is one of those style of movies, this fits a multiple style, where they're beating it to death. Video game movies or these historical dramatizations of real events, they're going to continue making those movies because they typically do well. If not in theaters, they do very well on streaming. As for the actual substance, Gran Turismo was fun. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. The cinematography on the racing scenes in particular was great. Uh, it was very, very well shot as these cars are driving at incredibly high speeds. They clearly knew what they're doing. Director Neil Blom can't I cannot remember his last name. Blomkin? Blomkamp?
the cinematography on this was incredible, especially during a lot of the race scenes. I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I thought I would. And one thing in particular, because Gran Turismo is a racing simulator, it's available on, I believe, PC or on PlayStation. What they, I think they did the best in this movie was keeping it true to its roots in that it's a real life story with real racing, but it's also based on a racing simulator or a video game. And the ability to blend those and combine them where there are scenes where your protagonist is driving and all of a sudden it transitions into what is a racing simulator environment or vice versa. They're in, on the racing simulator and it transitions to them actually driving a real car. It's blended so seamlessly and so well. I really enjoyed that aspect of it and it surprised me because lots of times when there's a game that kind of cross a game a movie that kind of crosses genres like that they can't quite blend them well and Gran Turismo did it very well on the acting front I need to talk about David Harborough because he put in such a fantastic performance that is way stronger than I think the overall quality of the movie called for it really made me love David Harborough as an actor you may know him from Stranger Things he was also in the Black Widow movie from Marvel. He was in, I think he's Red Guardian in Black Widow. He was in uh, The Newsroom. I love him as an actor. I think he has, uh, like Lakeith Stanfield, really great on-screen chemistry. He brings a ton of emotion and depth to his character in this movie that just really sets it another level above as another check mark for this movie and why I enjoyed it. It's been out for... Almost three weeks now, it's grossed $93 million on a $60 million budget. That's one and a half times the budget. It's going to continue making money, I think. If I were Sony, I'd be very happy with how this movie is done at the box office. Something like this, especially given the fact that they delayed the release window to do a multiple limited release weekends before going wide without having their big name stars and David Harbour and Orlando Bloom to promote it. I think this movie should be seen as a success from Sony. And then what's also probably doing decent business for this movie is the fact that product placement in it is just absolutely shoved down your throat. That felt like every single scene you were seeing either the PlayStation logo or Sony or Nissan or Porsche or Lamborghini, whoever it is, the logos are everywhere. Lingering shots for a couple seconds just on the logo to really let you know who was involved in this movie. I'm sure that financed quite a bit of the production budget, getting all that product placement and ad revenue. So good on Sony for making that money, I guess. As far as my recommendation for seeing this, I think there's a number of different reasons why people might be interested in it. One, that historical dramatization. It's always cool to see a real-life story brought to the big screen. Two, if you're a fan of racing. It's a great racing movie, in my opinion, one of the better ones of the last few years. If you've played Gran Turismo, I have not, but it seemed to really do that simulator justice, in my opinion. And if you're just a car person in general, if you really like cars, this movie is a great car movie. So there's plenty of reasons to go see it. Another one of those movies I went in with very low expectations. This one, out of all the movies I'll talk about today, probably surprised me the most and how much I liked it, and how much I immersed myself in the theater for it. It was absolutely watch, worth watching in theaters because of that large screen and enhanced sound. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed Gran Turismo, 7.1 out of 10. Okay, 
Only one movie left to talk about today. Here's my review for DC's newest film, Blue Beetle. The latest edition of DC and the big screen features a much lesser known character in the form of Jaime Reyes or Blue Beetle. I'm going to start with the bad of this movie. The story wasn't all that interesting. I, I'm i going to explain a little bit more in detail later why this is kind of hypocritical of me, but I wasn't very invested in the story, especially when you look at the antagonists uh, played by Susan Sarandon and Raul Max Trujillo. They're playing Victoria Cord and Kara Pax, respectively. They didn't. Re- they just didn't do it for me. And it's not through any fault of their own. I thought they were decently well acting. It's just those the motivations behind the antagonist didn't quite get me invested in rooting against them, so to say. It was very generic villains, which is okay. Sometimes the villains have to be generic, especially when you're dealing with an origin story. And that origin story aspect brings me to the good of this movie. Solo Maradona as Jaime Reyes is so incredibly likable. It's really a shame that the actors could not promote their movies right now because I would have loved to see him on a press circuit on all the late night shows, all the interviews, because he does seem like a blast and a great person. He's just popping with charisma on the screen. Very easy to root for him. Then you have George Lopez as well as Uncle Rudy was hilarious and was a lot of the comedy within this movie. And the movie's story had so much heart to it, which I really enjoyed. It's more than I can say for a lot of DC movies. They're often lacking that heart and that family element. Blue Beetle strikes the family chord perfectly. I I got emotional almost at times during it because of how well it had built that family story and connection and how they handled it as the story and the plot progressed. It's a refreshing change of pace for comic book movies too as they continue to give you insight to cultures that are not typically focused on in superhero movies. Like Black Panther and Shang-Chi before it, Blue Beetle does a great job of showing this culture and representing characters from minorities that are often not represented. Seeing what this family element meant to a Hispanic family was great. I I think that is the strongest aspect of the movie, the family element in it. And then this was where I was kind of hypocritical to myself of not being interested in the story because this is a much smaller scale story. It's not the end of the world. It's not some big scale that it doesn't need to be. It's very much an origin story with small local scale for what is happening within this Jaime Reyes' city. And... I actually am thrilled about it. While I could not get invested in it too much, I'm thrilled that DC didn't try to end the world yet again. They brought the scale down. They made it more local, more family-focused, more this character's discovering himself. Let's go on that journey with him, which I think was a great decision. It bumped my opinion on this movie up quite a bit. As I mentioned, it has not done great at the box office. Probably because of the fact that I've never heard of Blue Beetle as a character. I've never heard of Jaime Reyes. So I went to see it because I am a huge comic book movie fan. I don't think this is a movie that's going to get that fringe audience that will sometimes like comic book movies if it's a character they like into theaters. It's going to get DC fans and comic book fans like myself into the theaters. That said, if you are one of those fringe 
audience members of a movie like this, I think when it's available at home, you should absolutely watch it at home. This is not a movie I would have paid for for a ticket. That said, I didn't dislike it. I did enjoy my time watching this movie, and it was probably my favorite of the DC movies I've seen this year. When you look at Shazam 2 and The Flash, I think Blue Beetle is probably the top of that list. Blue Beetle is getting a 6.7 out of 10. Watch it at home when it's out on HBO Max. This movie is wholesome. That's where I'll leave it at. And that's it. That's five movies talked about in one episode. I thought I was flying through those, but then it ended up taking longer, probably because I went from the movie I had the least to say about all the way through to the movie I had the most to say about. But I am that catches you up with what I've seen in theaters. Now I have a lot of movies to see in theaters coming up. And I'll touch on that in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about Another industry aspect of a couple weeks ago, there was a bunch of film festivals, both Telluride Film Festival and Venice Film Festival took place at the end of August, I want to say it was. And there's a couple movies that were screened that I've been hearing reviews on now, or not full reviews, but snippets, tweets that I'm very, very excited for. So I'm going to give you five of those in order of my lowest level excitement to the one I'm most excited for, and I will just talk about them a bit. All right. First, we have Michael Mann's Ferrari, starring Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari. This movie is rated at 75% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. I've seen some images from it and a teaser. Adam Driver looks great. I think he's fantastic in these biopics. I loved him in House of Gucci, so I am really excited to see what he does with the Enzo Ferrari character. I will have to watch Ford vs. Ferrari before I see this, and hopefully I can align that, that I talk about those two movies at the same time. Very excited for Enzo. Uh, very excited for Michael Mann's Ferrari. Up next is The Killer uh, from director David Fincher, starring Michael Fassbender. This is a combo I love. David Fincher famously has directed The Social Network, Fight Club, Zodiac, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Michael Fassbender, for some reason, I just love him as an actor. Everything I've seen him in, I think he's a delight on the screen. I'm very excited for this. It's rated at 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. People that watched it said it is a fantastic Michael Fassbender performance. I keep saying it and I will say it until the movie comes out and I finally get to watch it. Excitement is the only thing I feel. I love a David Fincher movie. Social Network was in my top five movies, so cannot wait for this. Up next is Saltburn. Sitting at 82% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. It's from director... Emerald Fennel, it stars Barry Keegan from Banshees of Sharon and Jacob Elordi, who you may know from Euphoria. This movie is supposed to be wild. Barry Keegan plays a lower class friend who visits Jacob Elordi at this very high class manor and they spend, I can't remember if it's a summer together or whatever it may be. Everyone that has come out of this movie has said it is absolutely insane and off the walls. I cannot wait. I love a movie that's like that. I think it's going to be very, very strong. I will keep you updated. Watch the trailer for it. It looks like a blast. Then we have Priscilla. The Priscilla Presley biopic from director Sofia Coppola sitting at 94% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. It's almost a foil to Elvis from last year from director Baz Luhrmann as this is not focused on Elvis. It is 
fully focused on Priscilla Presley. Kaylee Spaney plays Priscilla in this movie. Jacob Elordi is also in this. He is our Elvis. I am very curious about this. Very excited to learn more about Priscilla Presley's life. It's supposed to be a gorgeous movie. It's supposed to be really strong. It's probably going to be a contender for awards. But it's not the biggest movie, the most rave about movie to come out of the most recent round of the festival circuit. That belongs to Poor Things from director Yorgos Lothramos, sitting at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Emma Stone stars in this. She is arguably the front runner for Best Actress currently. You also have Mark Ruffalo in this movie, who is already starting to get buzz for Best Supporting Actor. It's a dark horse for Best Picture, too. I am hearing so many good things about Poor Things. People are really excited about this movie. I'm really excited about it. I have no idea what to expect from it, but it's supposed to be some amazing performances and one of the most memorable movies of this year. A couple uh, movie reviewers I've listened to have said there's a chance this is is everything everywhere all at once of this year, that it has a chance to just blow us all away as the Oscars and award season gets closer. It's just going to start racking up wins and everything else will be left in the dust, so that'll be very interesting. But a lot of those movies are a couple months out at a minimum. On my more immediate slate, after recording this episode tonight, I'm actually going to go see A Haunting in Venice. I am very conflicted on how excited I am for this movie. Death on the Nile I did not like. It was maybe my lowest rated movie from last year, but this looks like they've changed the tone. They've done something different. It looks very scary. It's a great way to Truly kick off spooky season, I think. I already mentioned the Equalizer 3. I'm very excited to see that. I love a good action movie. I'm excited to just shut my brain off for a couple hours and watch Denzel do what Denzel does. Then also coming out this week is Dumb Money. The dramatization of what happened with the GameStop stock and how that blew up and everything that transpired there. I love that style movie, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, so I'm excited to get another one of those. Then at the end of the month, we have The Creator, a new sci-fi story that looks very intriguing to me. I love a good sci-fi movie. I've heard really good things about it already. Excited to catch a... I haven't seen a sci-fi movie in quite a while. I don't think like comic book movies count as sci-fi. So I am really excited for something like that. And then to wrap out the end of this next month of movie watching, there'll be Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. I have a ton of movies I've been watching at home that it will filter in with rapid-fire reviews. The slate's starting to dry up a bit, which has me kind of bummed, but I'm going to see as many movies as I can in that time. And that's about it. That's all I really have today. I really covered a lot of topics. Five different movies, a box office update, a strike update, festivals, upcoming movies. That's a lot going on for me in my little corner of the movie industry that I'm excited about. Hopefully the strike can get wrapped up and we can stop having movies delayed and get back to what has been a really good year for movies in my opinion. But that remains to be seen though. Next week I will definitely have Haunting in Venice to talk about for you. Hopefully I will have seen The Equalizer 3 by then. If not, I think it's September 14th today. I think I've already watched 10 movies this month. So I have tons of movies built up, older movies that I can have seen for the first time and can finally talk about, which is exciting. So I'll throw in some rapid fire reviews here and there. And 
thank you for coming by. As always, follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd is the big one, at Sidekick Critic. Keep up with my movie watching habits. And this has been the Sidekick Critic Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Crosby. I'll see you next time.